Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast, and we can't wait to bring you these great stories from our entire team. We work hard day in and day out to bring you these stories from everyday Americans and from America itself. In the end, our stories celebrate the American people and the country itself. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, 
but it sure is good and beautiful. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We're a nonprofit and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now the story of the disastrous 1904 Olympics in St. Louis is told by anthropology professor and Olympic history expert Susan Brunell. Also the story of Tony Maglica, the founder of Mag Instrument, the company that makes the Cadillac of flashlights, the Maglite. But first, the story of a man who had a B-25 airplane in his backyard. In the early 1950s through 70s, the son of a penniless Czech immigrant, Walter Soplata, collected a rare and vintage World War II aircraft. His son, Wally, then wrote the book, The B-25 in the Backyard, My Father's Historic Airplane Sanctuary. Here's Monty with the story. Our story begins in the home state of the Wright Brothers, Ohio. Here's Wally Soplata on the eccentric airplane collector that was his father. Even as a young boy, I realized my father was different. As a result, the way we lived was different. But though we had airplanes parked near our house, it wasn't anything I paid much attention to in my early years. The planes didn't fly or do anything. Days, months, sometimes years would go by, the planes doing nothing, sitting in the same spot. For many reasons, this is an improbable story that never would have happened in the hands of any other person than the gifted eccentric who was my father. The Great Depression financially devastated his family when my father was six years old. And things only got worse when dad's abusive and alcoholic father abandoned him and his family when he was eight years old. Later, to help support a struggling family, dad was forced to go to work at an early age and thus was unable to attend high school. Despite such harsh and difficult times, there was one interest that fascinated my father and brought him great happiness as a young man, airplanes. It's been said that model airplanes that kids like my father made back then were the equivalent to what video games became to more recent generations of children. Adding to his fascination with airplanes, the major events that occurred during his childhood, such as Charles Lindbergh being the first to fly across the Atlantic, made front page headlines exciting people of all nations. Unfortunately, a house fire was yet another hardship for my father to endure. Not only did my father and his family lose their home, but almost all of the model airplanes he spent countless hours building were lost in the fire. And his devotion to aircraft and their history was unshaken by the loss. He would soon turn to a collection of real airplanes that would become his lifelong passion. There's various versions of this joke about airplanes. What is it that makes airplanes fly? Is it the lift of the wings, or the power of the engine, or the skill of the pilot? And the answer to the joke is no, it's none of those things. What makes airplanes fly is money. Sometimes a lot of money. Going back to the beginning of World War II, one thing you did not need money for was to join the Army Air Corps and become a pilot. But serving the military wasn't meant to be for him. Dad had a serious speech problem with a stutter. The draft board informed my father he was completely unqualified to serve in the U.S. military. 
That put a big monkey on Dad's back, especially with his older brother George serving in the Army and coming home from the Philippines as a war hero. Still, Dad did what he could and worked in a Cleveland factory making aircraft fuel pumps during the war. When the war ended, he, like so many working to build aircraft and aircraft components, suddenly found themselves without a job. So it was after the war that he got into the scrap metal business, working to recycle the large aircraft engines coming out of their crates. He was occasionally able to purchase an engine now and then, and eventually his first few aircraft. He started with an American Eagle biplane. Next he got an airplane that's a single engine trainer called the Valti BT-15 trainer. It's a propeller plane with one engine. In 1951, he purchased his first Navy Corsair, a fighter plane flown by the Navy, operated off aircraft carriers in World War II. Dad paid $100 for his first Corsair. He paid $500 for the second one and $200 for the third. So for a total price of $800, he had three Corsairs. Flyable Corsair today, you can look at spending somewhere around $2.5 million. Uh, plus or minus, but you know, certainly not the kind of numbers we're talking. Dad eventually got hired for a construction career as a union carpenter, which for him was a big break. And with a little extra money in his wallet, he set his sights on bigger aircraft. But a big frustration with Dad was that he was always out of money. He had five kids and, uh, you know, Dad was often unemployed during the winter months. Over many, many years, if you could find a day when he had more than $50 in his wallet, or $1,000 in the bank, those were some really good days. If there was one thing the Great Depression taught him, it was the value of being self-sufficient and being able to improvise with the things you do have when you can't afford what you don't have. The best example of Dad's self-sufficient aptitude involves his need for a crane to assemble the aircraft after towing them home. He could not afford a crane, so instead, he used a variety of items from some junked trucks and junked airplanes to build his own boom truck lift that we all refer to affectionately as the boom tractor without spending 50 bucks if even that. And always thinking of controlling cost, Dad never kept a battery in it. Instead, we mooched off the family Suburban and borrowed its battery on the days we used the tractor. Yet more penny-pinching to the extreme the tractor sometimes ran the suburban battery dead. But Dad refused to buy a battery charger. Instead, we'd put the dead battery back in the suburban, get the vehicle rolling downhill, and then pop the clutch to start the suburban's engine, and then let the suburban's engine generator recharge the battery. What he really wanted to do if he had more money was to go out to Arizona. Uh, Arizona is a state where there were giant aircraft boneyards, most military aircraft in World War II ended up being scrapped in Arizona. And you could buy airplanes basically for their value in scrap metal. But he didn't have the money to go there. And in those days, nobody had credit cards. So if you didn't have the money, you just couldn't do it. But he still dreamed of Arizona. Uh, I called it the airplane land of milk and honey. He talked about it all the time, and Dad would show me photographs of the boneyards where they were melting these airplanes down. I mean, as far as the eye can see, miles and miles of airplanes lined up, all to be melted down and uh, destroyed. Closest he got to it, uh, doing that, he bought a, a junked school bus. He bought the bus for about $100 at a salvage yard. 
It was a 1945 school bus made by the White Motor Company. It had the typical rush from being in Ohio. You could tell a few kids had played in that bus. It was, it was a beater. So dad was gonna make a camper out of it and like stories of West, go out West Arizona and hunt for some airplanes. But he never could get to Arizona. So the bus sat in Ohio. And then uh, a good friend of his from then had took over what had now become a magnesium plant. And he called my dad and he said, Walter, uh, I don't know what's going on here, but he's shocked. He got some really rare, unusual engines in a scrap bid. This guy, Mike the Scrap Man, said, I don't, I don't think I should scrap these engines. They, they, they're pretty rare engines. And so he sold a whole lot of about 10 engines to my father for like $100. Dad didn't have a truck, so what did he do? He uh, takes a school bus and gets a torch and he cuts a seam along the rear wall to where there's the standard emergency exit at the back of the school bus, but he decides it's not wide enough, so he gets a torch and he cuts the metal so he can bend the both sides of the door open to make the bus wider to fit those engines in his bus. And that's how I got those engines, rear engines home, was to haul him in his school bus. So that was the first trip with the bus, getting these very, very rare engines. And uh, Dad realized, hey, I can haul stuff with this thing. Some strange things happen. Though Dad had gone on to become a carpenter, when he was laid off, he wasn't gonna sit around and do nothing. Well, he still had contacts in the scrap metal business. He bids on a jet airplane in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, the Cutlass Jet. It's at a base called South Weymouth Naval Air Station. And it's a jet fighter plane that's uh, being sold for scrap. The scrap paperwork tells that its acquisition cost in Navy was in excess of $1 million. And Dad says, oh, what the heck, I probably won't win, but he, he offers a bid of $200 for the jet fighter plane. And a few weeks later, he's kind of surprised in the mail that he is the highest bidder. And he's really kind of nervous. It's 600 miles away. He has yet to haul an airplane more than about 40, 50 miles. And as he studies more and more about this jet airplane, it's quite big. It's a Navy airplane, which means it's heavy because it's gonna operate from aircraft carriers. He does not have a truck and he doesn't have a lot of money. So this is really the school bus's big story. Uh, so he drives it to the Navy base, gets there just fine. And the Navy people, of course, think, oh, he's using the bus as his camper while he's staying here to work on this jet he just purchased. Little did they know that Dad's gonna do more cutting with the torch, and he plans to cut the rest of the back wall of the bus off and stuff the fuselage of this Navy jet inside the bus for its trip home. This, of course, raises the eyebrows of the civil servants working at the disposal yard. So they call in the Navy brass to say, you know, what's going on here? My dad, honestly, I remember him retelling the story when he got back that he was really afraid that they would just lock him up as a lunatic. I mean, you're going to do what? You're going to haul this jet airplane inside your school bus. It just doesn't make any sense, but he explains it. It's all I got. I mean, they even asked him some questions like, hey, uh, when's the rest of your crew coming? You know, and they, of course, expect a scrapyard crew with a... And dad understood they kind of expected he'd show up with a big flatbed 18-wheeler semi-truck. But he hasn't got a crew and he hasn't got the truck. He's just got the school bus. And there's another issue. 
Rightly so, the military has become concerned about letting go of their combat airplanes. In theory, you could buy a jet airplane and maybe sell it to some foreign country that then decides to use our own weapon against us. Very valid concern. And so they came up with some rules about demilitarization about this time. They said, no part of the airplane can be bigger than four feet in length. Basically, you've got to chop it up and destroy it before it leaves the base. He wants to display this jet in his kind of private museum in his backyard. And just about time, he really thinks he's going to get locked up as a nutcase. So, and he's, the office, some of the senior brass come to visit with him, and he sees they've got wings on their chest. These guys are aviators. And Dad would later say, he goes, I don't know why I did it, but I took my airplane scrapbook with me. And I ran in the bus and got the scrapbook and started showing him photographs of the planes he had. The Air Race Corsair that won the 1947 Cleveland National Air Races. Another Corsair from the Akron Naval Air Station. And it turned out some of the officers had flown Corsairs. And they, oh my gosh, you've got Corsairs. A great Navy aircraft. Uh, good for you. They go, maybe this guy's really not a nutcase. He's actually got airplanes and he's displaying them. They said, what do you charge to the public? He said, I don't charge anything. People just come over and look at the planes anytime they want. And uh, I really like to save this cutlass. So they're like, well, we're, well we, don't, we don't know what to do. And then, uh, so they let Dad go look at the airplane, and they're not sure whether to give the okay in any of this. They said, go ahead and start working out, look at it, see what you think. My father didn't get to go to high school, but he's a very smart man. A lot of genius inside of that man's head. So he crawled on the plane, and he comes back to the brass, and he says, I've got an idea here. And they go, what is it? He says, well, I understand you don't want the airplane to fly again. I get that. But I want to take my torch, and I'm going to cut chunks out of the wing, and I'm going to hacksaw some parts out of the fuselage, and I'm going to make the airplane structurally very weak. It'll be strong enough to stand up together on display in my yard. But if somebody tried to fly it, it wouldn't be able to take the stress of flight, and the airplane would break up in flight. And so the officer said, well, we got some airplane mechanics on base, and we'll have them inspect the airplane when you're done. And if they concur that the airplane can't fly again, then we'll let you keep it in one piece. And sure enough, when you got the airplane inspected, the, the Navy mechanics assured the officer, said, yeah, this, this, this airplane can never fly again. It, it'll, just, it'll come apart. Mr. Zapata has weakened it to the point that it's not going to fly ever. And so with that, they, they let that keep the airplane. But the next challenge, of course, the big challenge is, is getting this thing home. They advised Dad, they were worried about, besides the jet going in the bus, they said, you know, you're, it's really going to be very heavy, you know, for that school bus to carry all this weight. And Dad kind of thought about that. He said, well, that means I have to make another trip to Boston. So no. So finally, I got a photo of this, by the way, just so we don't think I'm crazy. I got photographs of this. There's a crane, I'm looking at it right now, holding up the bus, and it's being pushed inside the school bus. It doesn't exactly fit. It's, it was a, Dad cut a slot through the roof for the cable of the crane to hold the airplane up. It kept getting stuck, and uh, finally somebody got the idea to get a bulldozer and push from behind and have Dad sit in the driver's seat, hold the brakes, and block the tires and, and push the thing in with a, a bulldozer. And I said earlier that it's kind of a good thing the bus came from Ohio and, and there was a lot of rust because basically the, the body, right where the wall joins the floor, it just said, I've had enough, and it split out and it ripped apart. 
which caused the Navy guys to name it the Banana Bus. And his dad described it. He's in the driver's seat. There's the sound of the bulldozer. There's screeching metal and popping and all kinds of bad sounds. And the nose is coming forward and forward, closer to him and closer to him. And finally dawns on him. If this thing suddenly goes cockeyed one side or the other, it could crush me to death up here in the driver's seat if anything got out of alignment. But it went okay, and it's finally the, they got the thing all the way in, and the very nose of the jet is right up against the driver's seat. As they're getting ready to go, uh, Dad learns that the Navy personnel have been gambling a little bit and placing bets on whether he'll make it or not. So he's heard this going on for a couple days, and as he's about to drive away, he asks one of the guys, says, hey, uh, what's the highest bet thus far? You know, how many guys think I'll make it? And the guy laughed and said, oh, uh, nobody thinks you're going to make it. Uh, but the highest bet is 50 miles. He did make it home okay. He said, man, I should have taken their money. I, you know, they'll bet on me not making it, and I made it. But he didn't come home entirely unscathed, as he pointed out to us. He got arrested like eight times. The biggest mistake he made was to drive the school bus on the New York State Thruway. And it might have been later in Pennsylvania, he told a great you know, fun story. He said a, a cop pulled him over and you know, took the sight into this airplane in the bus. And the one officer said, uh, well, I'm not going to call you into the station. And Dad goes, well, why not? And he goes, if I make a call to the station that I've got a guy with a, a jet airplane in a school bus, They'll think I'm drinking, so I'm not saying anything. And so <laughs> I was surprised to hear that. But that's what the story my father told. Uh, and just the whole bold uh, movement to get this jet fighter plane home under such you know uh, difficult conditions uh, gave Dad a really strong sense of confidence. Say, hey, if I could do that, I got away with a big airplane in a, in a big way. It really uh, was a turning point for him to just really get a lot of confidence that uh, you know, nothing can stop me. And it gave Walter the confidence to get bigger planes, including a B-52J bomber called Wild Cargo, that, unlike many of the other planes Walter would put in his backyard, eventually flew again. But what does Wally, his son, think about his father's obsession with all things aviation? Only in America could Walter A. Zapata, the son of penniless Czech immigrants, single-handedly accomplish so much in an obsessive mission to safe historic aircraft particularly from World War II. The most stunning and sobering aspect of his collection was the fact that if he had not saved these treasures, it was all but certain that most, if not all of them, would have been cut up for scrap metal. He alone, on a shoestring budget of a carpenter raising five children, had taken on this Herculean endeavor in a way that no one before him or after him could ever hope to duplicate. And great job, as always, by Monty Montgomery on the piece. And a special thanks to Wally Saplata on telling the story of his father. And by the way, the book is The B-25 in the Backyard, and you can find it on Amazon or any place where books are sold. Wally eventually flew planes himself, flying for FedEx and our armed forces. And by the way, so many FedEx pilots, so many pilots have once flown for our armed forces. And by the way, if you have a story to share, a strange one, a good one, a funny one, well, we all want to hear it. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com 
and click on the Your Stories tab. We're so glad you found the Our American Stories podcast. Help others discover us by giving us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever platform you listen to us on. Help others find us so they can hear these amazing stories about this good and great country. Up next, we have the story of the disastrous 1904 Olympics. Susan Brunell, professor of anthropology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, is an expert in Olympic Games and history. Here she is bringing us the story of the 1904 Olympics. I became interested in the Olympics as an athlete, actually. I mean, from the time I was quite young, I just really wanted to compete in the Olympic Games. And one thing led to another. I got a full athletic scholarship to college, and I competed at the elite level in track and field. But I just wasn't good enough to make an Olympic team. I uh, competed in the 1980 and 1984 Olympic trials. My best finish was seventh. But I was uh, lucky because um, I was able to convert it into an academic career. The first Olympic Games had been held in Greece, in Athens. And so that had really stamped the character of the early Olympic Games, which were connected with Western civilization, which actually was a sort of fairly new concept at that time. It was a concept that was um, emerging as uh, Europe tried to figure out what it had in common versus the rest of the world. And so the Games were linked with this, you know, glorious tradition going all the way back to classical Greece, which was shared by every Western, uh, Western, culturally Western person in the world, supposedly. The second games were held in Paris, Pierre de Coubertin's home stomping grounds. Uh, they had been less successful because they had been held together with a big exposition, the Paris Exposition of 1900. Coubertin had thought that would be a good idea, but in the end, they just kind of got lost in the mix with this huge exposition that was going on. So heading into the next Olympic Games in 1904, he had not wanted them to be held in association with an exposition, and originally they had been awarded to Chicago. At that time, the World's Fair was scheduled for 1903 because it was a celebration of the 100-year anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase, which was in 1803, but they couldn't get their act together and they were behind schedule, so they had to push back the opening a year to 1904. And they were planning a huge amount of sports events. James Sullivan was the president of the Amateur Athletic Union, the most powerful man in sports in the U.S. at that time. And he was the one organizing the sports um, in association with the World's Fair. Well, in 1901, there had been a big exposition in Buffalo, New York, at which he had declared that he was going to organize an Olympic Games because the Europeans didn't organize them and the Americans could organize one if they wanted. He got into a fight with Coubertin over that and eventually he yielded. But I think you could see that it would be a natural thing that in 1904 he would want those sports that he already planned to organize in association with the World's Fair to be designated, you know, at least part of them as Olympic sports. So there was a huge sports program surrounding the World's Fair, which was not all Olympic. The World's Fair went on for six months. That's how long they typically last. And the sports program went on for that entire time. And there were about 400 events and several thousand participants. And then within that, only a small uh, chunk 
was designated as the Olympic Games, and that was where you had the international participants. And it was quite dominated numerically by Americans because Europe was in a recession at the time. The Olympic Games really didn't mean much at the time anyway, so there just wasn't a lot of desire on the part of Europeans to send representatives to those games. The Americans really didn't care. They just weren't quite as obsessed with national identity as Europe was because, of course, this was in the time period when Europe was leading up to World War I and nationalism, you know, in the worst sense, really was growing day by day in Europe. The Europeans had this notion about all the pomp and circumstance and protocol that sh should surround Olympic Games. Part of it borrowed from the monarchical traditions. So like at the first games in Athens, the king sort of appeared in, uh, for the opening ceremonies and marches in and takes his place, you know, with his retinue and then other people follow and they express obeisance to the king. So monarchy was just kind of big at those games. Well, we didn't have a monarch. So, you know, the, the Americans just weren't into all that kind of display of power and hierarchy. But what they were into was the, the quality of the performances. Because, and that actually uh, linked up with something else that was going on, which was the commercialization of sports, particularly by the Spalding Sporting Goods Company, which really utilized those games to advertise its products. And part of what they did was to provide um, equipment and, and help renovate facilities so that the, the technological part of it was really the best Olympic Games held to that date. Of course, the Europeans could care less about that, but that you know, because of that, many of the performances were quite good and world records were set, of course, mostly by Americans. But <laughs> and, and that was really what the Americans cared about. But for that, they got labeled by the Europeans as utilitarian. That was an insult back then. And it came up over and over. And I, I think by that, the Europeans meant they, they just don't pay enough attention to uh, enough attention to, you know, culture and refinement, civilization, um, appearance, protocol, and they, they just, you know, wanted to do the sports. <laughs> and that's that wasn't quite right in the European point of view. And also the sports were partly being used as a tool, which was to sell, sell the products of Spalding Sporting Goods. Now that was not the case with the marathon because by, at that time, you know, there wasn't a market in running shoes. And another important point is that, and this was characteristic of the first three games, athletes represented their clubs, not a nation. Representation by nation didn't happen until immediately after the St. Louis games. But in the case of the marathon, it was even more casual than that because basically if you showed up at the starting line, you could jump into the race. And that, that's what happened with that event. And that's why it's such an interesting event, you know, compared to our typical assumptions about what Olympic Games are like. There were a number of well-known long-distance runners who showed up at the starting line and were ready to run a serious race. And then there were those like Felix Carvajal from Cuba who had well, he had a reputation in Cuba because he would sort of run across the island and raise money. He was a bit of an oddity, demonstrating his endurance. And he had caught a ship to New Orleans where he lost his money in a casino and he had to hitchhike from there to St. Louis. And he showed up on the starting line uh, wearing long pants, leather shoes, a little beret. And apparently one of the competitors said, this isn't gonna work real well in 90 degree heat. 
to be running in long pants and got out some scissors and cut his pants off to about just below knee length. And uh, so, you know, there were amusing stories like that. There were the two men who were called Zulus at the time. So they were from South Africa. We've recreated their biographies, um, Lin Tao and Jan Mashiani, and they were Tswana. They were members of the Tswana tribe. Lin and Jan jumped into the marathon uh, barefoot and did amazingly well, especially considering that, that one of them got run off the course by dogs who were chasing him. And after his detour rejoined and Lynn ended up getting ninth and Jan 12th. So the race itself was just not well planned. I mean, I think the attention that was given to the course or the facilities in other sports somehow just didn't <laughs> happen in the case of the marathon. So it was about 90 degrees um, heat. It's very humid in St. Louis because we're right here at the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. The road was dirt, dust, uh, most of the way it was dirt. It went out into the suburbs. Dust was being kicked up not only by the runners and there were cars driving alongside the runners kicking up dust, but also they hadn't even stopped traffic. So normal traffic was going on along the roads, delivery trucks, people walking their dogs, so the runners were just dodging everything. The dust was so bad that one of the runners collapsed and almost died from a ruptured esophagus, I believe, who was hauled off to the hospital and would have died if not for emergency surgery. And most of the runners didn't finish for that reason. There were only two water stations. Um, and that was an interesting part of the, the state of sports science at that time. It was believed that you should not drink water while you are running. So they deliberately dehydrated the athletes, essentially. Um, that may, might sound crazy to us today, but I actually remember when I was training as a track athlete in the early 80s, even up until then, it was believed that you shouldn't drink water while you're running, while you're working out, because it might give you stomach cramps. So, so that belief persisted for longer than you might think. So anyway, they're, um, they're running nearly 26 miles. They were dehydrated. It was dusty. And a lot of them just dropped out. The, the guy who was originally declared the winner, Fred Lors, he, he was a, a well-known long-distance runner with legitimate credentials. Um, but um, part, about nine miles into the race, he got cramps, as most of the runners were getting because they were dehydrated. And he hitched a ride with a car um, till close to the end when he got out and ran into the stadium for the final part of the race, as a result of which he was declared the winner and the daughter of the president, you know, declared him the winner. But he was very quickly revealed because, among other things, he'd been riding along in the car waving to the other competitors and to the spectators. Well, he, 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 he said it was just a joke that he had never intended to accept, you know, being declared the winner and he was taken by surprise and all that. So who knows how premeditated that was. It could be that when he came in and they, you know, they thought he'd won, maybe it was just too appealing to try to get by with the lie. The American Athletic Union didn't believe him and did ban him from the sport for a year. But interestingly, he then one year later won the Boston Marathon. So then the man who was declared the winner, Thomas Hicks, was another interesting case of really bad sports science because he also was deliberately dehydrated. Sullivan had actually sort of pinpointed him for special treatment as a, um, a guinea pig, literally, for Sullivan's theories. 
So not only was he not allowed to drink water, even though he was begging for it, um, they did sponge him off with warm distilled water, and they had some brandy that they were prepared to give him if he just couldn't go on, which um, at one point he's even begging for the brandy because he's so thirsty, and they wouldn't even give him that. But they were drugging him, so they gave him egg whites mixed with a little bit of strychnine sulfate which is maybe uh, not quite as bad as the straight-out strychnine used as rat poisoning, but strychnine sulfate is also used as rat poisoning. So it, it is poisonous. Uh, it's deadly. It causes convulsions and cramps, but it was used at that time as a, a stimulant in very small doses. So he was basically being given a stimulant. But he was lucky because any more of that, and he probably would have died. So by the time he got to the finish line, he was collapsing, hallucinating. It's a little unclear whether he got across the finish line by his own power. Maybe he was sort of carried by with a man under each arm while he sort of moved his legs. <laughs> In any case, he was declared the winner. So that was the official winner of the marathon in St. Louis. The diversity was really kind of an American feature of those games. But that was part of the messiness that the Europeans just didn't like. You know, they wanted everybody to be organized behind national flags. And that was what happened immediately afterwards. There was an Olympic Games called the Intermediate Olympic Games. They went back to Athens in 1906. It was an, an official games at the time, but the International Olympic Committee these days refuses to recognize it as an official Olympic Games. But that was the first Olympic Games at which there was a parade of athletes with athletes marching behind flags and at which there was a medal ceremony when the flags of the athletes were raised. And also national Olympic committees were in charge of designating who got to compete. So very, very quickly from the messiness of St. Louis, we got this well-ordered national representation that characterized, has characterized the games up until today. Debates still rage about the um, history of Olympic participation for different countries. So the world wasn't divided up into countries in the same way then. And in particular, athletes didn't compete representing countries in 1904. But that has meaning today. And because there are medal tallies on the uh, website of the International Olympic Committee, and there are historians who keep track of how many medals has one country won, throughout Olympic history compared to the other country, and who was the first medalist for a particular country. And these things really matter. People get very angry about them. So the problem for these people is that in St. Louis, you, you have to go back and reconstruct, and it's open to interpretation as to exactly what country these athletes were representing. So anyway, it's just amusing how strongly uh, some people feel about this. There are letters petitioning the International Olympic Committee, and you know, it, it just gets very heated sometimes. What happened in the, the split between the Europeans and the Americans in 1904 is one that, can, that has continued up until the present day. And there's just been this uh, difference in that Europeans prefer more sort of culture, protocol, symbolism, and Americans are more utilitarian and, and our sport is more commercialized. So that, that has remained a point of conflict. We saw it in Atlanta in 1996 when once again, as happened in St. Louis, there were complaints about the utilitarian, utilitarian Americans over commercialization, 
the lack of um, aesthetic appeal of those Olympic Games. And then eight years later, they went back to Athens in 2004, and I think the Europeans were happy that those games had the proper dignity that they think games should have. And also they were relinked again to Western civilization and its roots. This has just been a sort of continual conflict, which is a, you know, a cultural difference that's worth thinking about inside the International Olympic Committee. The Europeans who control it, the Europeans control the organization, but the Americans provide the vast amount of the funding. And so it's basically money versus power, culture versus profit. It's a tension that has continued up until the present day. And great job as always by Faith and a special thanks to Professor Burnell. And she teaches anthropology at the University of Missouri at St. Louis. And it's true today, old habits die hard. Symbolism and cultural power versus the utilitarian nature of Americans. And that's one of our virtues. And, of course, commercialization. Oh, profit. Well, we do that. We like it. It's what we do. And a special thanks, as always, for all of our history stories. Go to our sponsor, Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale is a beautiful and great place to go to learn all the things that are good and beautiful about this country. And if you can't make it to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Finally, we have the story of Tony Meglica. After escaping the horrors of World War II in Croatia, Tony founded Mag Instrument, bringing us the Maglite flashlight. But Tony's story goes deeper than the product his company makes. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with the story of a man who started with nothing and achieved the American dream. Tony Maglico was born in New York City in November of 1930, but with the Great Depression in full swing, he and his family moved back to his mother's native island in Croatia. 1932, my mom went to, back to Europe. My father stayed here. They thought things going to blow up in no time. So things going to be good right away, you know, so. But he said he didn't have no money. He didn't have no jobs. My father didn't even have the money to send my mom back. He had to borrow money on a future, a job that he gets and pay it back. So I went over there with my mom, and we're supposed to be, go back in a couple of years. So they said, well, we're going to save a little more money and this and that. And we are quite caught in a war, World War II. And that wasn't very pleasant to anyone. It was very difficult to live on the Mussolini. They, if they suspect that you are a communist or you are on the other side, whatever side that it is, they simply torture you and kill you. One of, one of the tortures there was by rich in oil, castor oil, and they will put a tube in your throat and they will give you maybe a quart or so of this oil. And you die. I mean, it's just simply not immediately. 
But you know, it's just, it's a horrible way to die. There was no freedom to, to leave the town. We have no income. Then when the Italian got defeated, they got involved with, with Germans. When a German comes in, in a town, it was so frightening because they wanted all the people in the town to come down to a to town. And they put the entirely town in a semicircle against a big wall with three machine guns, one here, one there, and one in the center. And I was just a young man. I remember my mom was there standing up. I was right on the center. <laughs> so I went under my mom's skirt. This guy was really upset. Tell us to come out. They tell us to we exposed somebody. They said that they know that we killed somebody in town to dispose the person who have committed this crime. Well, there was no one that committed a crime. And we don't know if somebody committed a crime. Said, if you don't say, we're gonna kill all of you. So what are you, what are you gonna do? Just point the finger on an innocent person. And, and the people that time, even if their life was on the line, they won't do it, they won't lie. There was a priest there, and he was begging that his people are never commit any kind of crime. And he has, priest say, you have a power to kill us all. I understand that, but if we tell you that this person commit a crime, we don't know that anybody commit a crime, and in this town, never been person in jail. There's never been anyone committed. You know, they, they believe in God by doing crime like that. So anyway, on the end of about four hours, they're standing up, and you don't know that when they're going to pull the trigger. It's almost like being dead anyway. You don't know any second that they're going to turn around and start shooting. So my mom was terrified, and I, of course I was terrified. I mean, we all, the whole town was terrified. Then they let us go. It wasn't something everywhere in the country. You know, other town, you know, they put the people on a, against the wall, just shoot them. But if there was anything positive about this time in Tony's life, it was his mother. Here's Tony telling the story of what she did to help the family during this traumatic time. And anything, what she did, we sold it. Everything that we brought from the U.S., we sold the blankets, 
the cups, the spoon, the plates, whatever we have, trade for corn. My mom will have a, will save the corn and the various seeds of various grass, various beans and stuff like that. And we kept that in a, in a pillowcase. There was no bags or anything. That, by that time, it was five years war over there. People gone through everything they have. Either traded out, bothered for food. Interesting, you can't forget when you are hungry and you don't forget. And I learned something from it. No matter how hungry we was, my mom would go to the pillowcase and she would take a cup of wheat. You know, I tell you, it's hard for me to even talk about it. There is no one like the mother. By 1950, Tony had had enough of living in war-torn Croatia and made the decision to come back to the United States. Well, I went to a, um, from Zagreb to Paris, then went to a harbor called La Havre or something like that. And from there, I gone to St. Anthony in, in England, I mean, I was just on a boat. That's how we traveled. I didn't get out of the boat. There was a boat, that, a war boat, personnel boat, big ship. And they got it, England got it for the damage that they did, I guess they had to pay. So they took the boat. And so they used that to transport the people. I know it was like, a, they was making a tourism out of it. So you have it two, three classes on that boat. The third class, it was just uh, shelves, like, like a shelf where you store your, your cans. There was a uh, six bed in this, this little closet. So it was myself and five other people. So I have it tough, but there's other people have it even tougher than I am. Family was tortured. The member of the family got killed. All these things, you have to have a desire to survive. You have to have a desire to accomplish something. And Tony would accomplish something. But for right now, he was just one of many immigrants arriving in New York speaking very little English and with no money. So his first task was finding work. When I came to New York, I went to work in a sewing company, making clothes. So make a collar, sleeves, or whatever. 55 cents an hour. That was a lot of money then, well, at least for me it was. Anyway, I didn't know anything in the interest, you know, metric. So I said, I want to learn how to do it. So the guy says to me, go to school, there's trade school. So I went to trade school, I was there one week, and the guy, the guy said, look, fella, you need to go get a job. You don't need to go to school for this thing. You can teach the other guys how to do that. I couldn't speak English. How <laughs> can I teach anybody? So I went to Denver, Colorado, I got a job in machine shop. 
But before Tony was hired at the shop he would work at, he faced some aversion there because of his lack of English. And they said, you can't. How can you do this job? You can't work here. I said, give me a job. If I can't do it, don't have to pay me anything. I work for free. Said, oh, we have a union here and stuff. We can't do that. And the guy says over there was speaking Italian. So my Italian was not really good, but it was the only thing I have, and nobody speaks Croatian. So the guy talked to me in Italian. He said, you really think you can do the job? I said, yeah. So the guy said to the guy, why don't you give a guy opportunity? Give him a chance. The guy said, well, come on. In the office, he won't like that that we're doing. I said, look, nobody knows anything. You know, why don't you just, maybe we can get a big laugh out of it. The guy gave it to me. He gave me a machine that wasn't running for years. I cleaned that machine, made the slides move, turned the machine on, and I made the parts. In one week, just as good as the people I was doing now, another machine that was costing at that time probably maybe $8,000. I worked there for a year or something. But then these people said, you know, Tony, why don't you go to California? It's a nice weather, and you can make it $3 an hour. $3 an hour, God. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of money. $3 an hour, more than three times what I'm making now. And I bought a 1947 Sturdybacker, and that was a piece, I'll tell you. The guy that I worked that gave me a dollar and a quarter an hour, he gave me his car to drive. That's the first test of me in this country, a people, pleasant. They wanted me, want to help me. I felt so guilty that I have to leave, leave by myself. I gotta get it, I gotta get it ahead. So anyway, I only made it about 10 miles away from the, the Denver. My car overheated. Nevertheless, Tony made it to California, where he would eventually find work at the A.O. Smith Company, a manufacturer of everything from car bodies to water heaters. It was a really good job. I was making over $3 an hour. But there was a downside. We have a norm that you have to produce at least that much to keep your pay rate. And so I will make that. I will even give some parts to the people next to me who are making the same parts. Remember, the inspector will say, this is not your part. This is, this is Tony part <laughs> to the other guy. So the guy would, you know, let it go, you know. But the one thing that that didn't like, they didn't want me to make so many parts. Didn't want me to shop my own tool. A very strict union. The guy said, look, you don't have to make that many parts. I said, but look at how many people are lying waiting to get a tool shop. I said, I can do it in five minutes and I ain't got to back to work. The guy said, Tony, if you're going to do that, you're going to get in trouble. And it was right. I did. The people, when I got to the bathroom, they were over there, slow me down everywhere I can. They messed with Tony's machine, hampering his ability to produce. I said, my God, 
I was thinking about my mom telling me, you work hard and do a good job. Why this? Why did people do stuff like that? I was really sick in my stomach. Tired of spending his days at a company where he was being held back, Tony decided to use $125 he had saved up to make a down payment on his own machine. Soon, he was able to rent a garage in South El Monte, California, and would pick up some contract jobs, initially working for his supervisor at A.O. Smith Company, who would offer him some advice. He said, Tony, I heard you have a lady at home. And he said, what about making these shots for me? And I said, sure. Here, you show me what you can do. The guy gives me that. He said, Tony, you know, you're doing a good job, but I need thousands of these parts, not just 50 or 100. Why don't you just quit the job and, and do this in, in your garage? You can make more money than you're making here. I said, that was my goal. But I didn't know where to get to work. I was doing the work for James Bond and Clark, and I was doing also the business for Cloud and Multiplier. That used to be a calculator that was done by you know, <laughs> division and multiplication. You know. Anyway. They did a government job, so I was doing some job from there. And I was doing all different kind of stuff. The 30 millimeter projectile, Maui 7 fuse bomb, and those are very competitive job. For one penny, you can lose the job, even if you run it now. And it's, job shop is very competitive business. People don't know how competitive that is. Anyway, I was doing the different job shop work, all kind of job shop work, including a component that actually took the satellite, first satellite up in, in space. I was making parts for everybody. Then there's a company by the name of Bianchi Company, and they made an aluminum light. So I told the guy, you know, I can make a light better than anything that you guys have. So when I developed and showed him, he said, no, we want to make our own life. We don't want your life. But despite the setback, others were still interested in Tony's flashlight, including Neil Perkins, founder of Safariland, who was looking to make a new flashlight specifically designed for law enforcement. And he said, I heard that you have a flashlight. How about let me sell your flashlight? I'll sell it for you. You'll have to make it. So I say to him, okay, how many you can sell? Well, he said, last year we sell several thousand. Seven thousand for the whole year? Yeah, he said the part of it we couldn't get a delivery on it because the guy couldn't make it. I said, well, if I'm going to make it for you, I wanted 15000 a month. He said, it's only 15000 a month. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> well, I said, yeah, I know I can make it. I can sell it. I can make it. And I can make it in production. I can make it economically enough and, and be able to sell it. 
He said, I'm sorry, Tony, but God, I wish you change your, if you change your mind, if it doesn't work, please come back. So a determined Tony took his flashlight to a trade show. We sold, first show, thousands. You heard right. Tony had far exceeded expectations at his first trade show. And Maglite wasn't just popular with law enforcement. With the introduction of Minimag, it became popular with the average consumer as well. Tony was making a lot of flashlights. We averaged thousands a day, all the flashlights combined, not just Minimag. But Minimag, we sold them millions. Tony Maglica, who came back to his birth country speaking no English and with very little money, had become a self-made millionaire. Tony didn't settle down, though, and now in his 90s, he's still working and making maglites in America, nowhere else. I go to work every day. I never miss a day. I work from Monday to through Saturday. Saturday, I spend... Not quite a full day. But during the week, I'm trying to be here before 8. And I never leave before 6, maybe 7. Sometime when it's nice, when the light is on, I don't go home till 9. Then when I come home, I eat the dinner. I go right on the drawing board, upstairs. People say, why are you doing it? Don't you make enough money? Yes, I have made enough money. I want the mag to continue. I want my children to continue. I want the people that are here, they've been with me from beginning, to continue. So what do I do now? Just kick them in a butt and say, go home? You can't do that. My conscience won't let me. When you make enough money for yourself, and your family is secure. And if you can do a good thing, good deed, there is no biggest pleasure in the world than doing that. My really goal is someday to have this company before I leave this earth, that I can get a good people, give them a little slice of that pie. For Tony, his mission is to keep his business in the country that made it possible for it to exist in the first place, and to continue to help the people that open their arms to him. It's the least he can do. People retire, or people call me and tell me that they thank me. They thank me what I've done for them. Create a job for them, they raise their family, they bought a home, they see their grandchildren, they retire. One guy I have it. I didn't have very much money a day. I was really struggling there. And the doctor told me he had to quit working. The guy comes in in my office and he's crying. I said, John, what's the matter? I have to leave my job, this job. I said, but that's not the end of the world. What's? No, he said, I have a heart problem. A doctor wants me to retire, stop working. I said, John, it's okay, you know. I didn't have that much money. I wrote them a check of $100,000, send them around the world. 
I felt good to know that I was able to do that for him. I invest in equipment, I invest, invest on the people, and I didn't want to go to China to make it. I could have gone to there to China to make it. I the multi-billionaire. Why? This is the only place in the world they can do what I did. And everybody has that opportunity. There is no place in the world that you can have what you, opportunity that you have here. I will give up all my business, everything, for this country, and I will give my life for this country. You're free to do whatever you want, as long as you stay within the law. The best day I have, I think, when I landed in New York, it was a land of freedom. You don't understand what that is. Nobody understands what the freedom is. Nobody understands what we got here. They don't understand that our Constitution, like there's something horrible thing, they think they want to change it. Why do you want to change it when it's perfect? Don't, don't try to fix something that's not broken. That compared with all the world, find the place that you can think you'd rather be than here. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you are. God bless you. Be what you want to be. And a special thanks to Philip Graham for bringing us that story and to Monty Montgomery for producing it. And a special thanks to Tony for sharing his story of triumph and adversity. It was no duck walk doing what he did. But to hear an immigrant, a first-generation immigrant, talk about his country, well, it's been my life's work is meeting folks like this, remembering that these were the people that my grandparents were, and they had continually, continually reminded me of what this country did for our family. And that's what we try and do here, folks. America's not a perfect country, but it's a good one, and it's a beautiful one. And stories like Tony's, they're everywhere. And my goodness, think about how he just talked about business. He could have cashed it in, but he invests in his business, he invests in his people, because it brings him joy. And my goodness, it creates work and jobs, and those people go home to the homes and finance college educations and their dreams because of what Tony's doing. And sadly, not enough of us know the impact that one entrepreneur, one business owner can have on a community, let alone his own country. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. You won't regret listening to our Memorial Day special and the story of Congressional Medal of Honor recipient Jared Monty, as told by his father, Paul, plus so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib. And this is the Our American Stories podcast.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.